This is Ian McRae, co-author of Myths of Social Media, Dispel the Misconceptions, and Master Social Media, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. This episode is sponsored by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Ian McRae to talk about the second edition of the book he has co-authored with Michelle Carville, Myths of Social Media, Dispel the Misconceptions and Master Social Media, published by Kogan Page. Ian McRae is a work psychologist, consultant, speaker, author, and managing director of High Potential Psychology. He works with and writes about a wide range of topics relating to psychology and the workplace. He developed the High Potential Traits Inventory, HPTI, a personality assessment which has been translated into dozens of languages and used by over 50,000 people around the world. He is published six books, which have been translated into 10 different languages, including Myths of Work, Dispel the Misconceptions and Succeed in the World of Work, Dark Social, Understanding the Darker Side of Work, Personality, and Social Media, High Potential, How to Spot, Manage, and Develop Talented People at Work, and Motivation and Performance, A Guide to Motivating a Diverse Workforce. And, interesting fact, despite living in the UK and having a Scottish name, he doesn't have a Scottish accent. He's from Canada. Ian, congratulations on Myths of Social Media, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So, Ian, what I had in mind was to talk about your book for about five minutes and then tell jokes about Canadians. <laughs> great. I'm actually not going to do that, but I do want to play this bit by Jim Gaffigan. That's, a, that's the American stereotype, obnoxious. The Canadian stereotype, polite, which is not a stereotype. It's a compliment. But you guys still get angry. We're not polite. We're passive-aggressive. <laughs> But what you don't realize to an American, passive-aggressive is polite. <laughs> but everything about Canada is pleasant. Even the Canadian flag. Most national flags have all these macho symbols like Mexico is an eagle eating a snake, America's stars and stripes, and Canada's just like, just put a leaf out there. <laughs> one for every province? Ah, just one maple leaf. <laughs> As a result, everyone likes Canadians. Everyone likes Canadians, you know? Not liking Canadians is an indication of a mental problem. <laughs> I don't like Canadians or puppies. <laughs> Remember when China was mad at Canada? The whole world was like, come on, China. When I first learned that I was going to interview Ian McRae, I thought he was going to sound like this. I'm rich and I'm dead sexy. <laughs> Before we were recording, you mentioned that a lot of times people 
expect you to be an old Scottish guy. Yeah, I've had some strange introductions when people haven't seen a photo of me or don't really know me except from a kind of online written profile. And then all of a sudden I show up and they're not at all what I expect. So thanks for the introduction and clarifying that. Yeah. So this is the second edition of The Myths of Social Media. And the first edition was on the Marketing Book Podcast, episode 291, back in the summer of 2020 with your co-author, Michelle Carville. And this is one of a very small number of books that have been on the show twice. You know, most books don't make it to a second edition. I liked it so much. And I'm a big fan of these myths series from Kogan Page. But what are some of the primary differences in this second edition? Yeah, it's been updated because social media is an interesting topic because in some ways not a lot changes over two years, but then in some ways everything changes over two years. So when we're looking at doing the second editions of Myths of Social Media in particular, some of the stuff that has to happen is we have to update some of the statistics and you know usage statistics and who's on this and how we understand these platforms. But some of this has fundamentally changed in a couple of years too. Like when we were writing the first edition, TikTok was just up and coming and it was kind of everywhere but in smaller circles and they had a huge 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 marketing campaign i think in 2019 tiktok spent a billion dollars in the u.s in marketing um, but now all of a sudden it's a much more widespread more used platform so as we're talking about social media especially social media as it's useful for business we have to look at what are the trends that are new what do we have to know about and talk about now but also it's interesting to look at what is what hasn't changed right so what are the kind of core concepts when we're talking about strategy about when we're talking about communication, marketing, just how you're using communications in business. What are those fundamental lessons that don't change? And then how do we change our tactics for the latest platforms and trends and um, different things that to match that to make sure it works out? So yeah, some of the core kind of strategic components are very similar, um, but there's lots of updates about what we should be doing and what we need to know this year. Well, the world is changing faster and faster, but the world of social media changes even faster than that. And uh... Uh, for instance, I heard there's a new owner of Twitter. Yes, I've heard about that too. I think he's kind of uncontroversial, but trying to make a bit of a splash subtly, right? <laughs> so yeah, and that's interesting because something like that can fundamentally change a platform. Um, and who is marketing on that platform? Who's communicating on that platform? And we might talk about this later, but the rules governing these platforms are really, really important fundamentally, especially from a perspective of business and marketing, because you have to know how your message is being seen and by whom and what kind of strategies you need to get noticed. And if there's going to be other content alongside your messaging or your communications or your marketing content that maybe you're less comfortable with. So as these platforms grow and change, the user bases change, the types of messages that are on these platforms change, and what kind of you know useful content to put on which platform is a constantly evolving discussion, really. Yes, in three years, I won't be surprised if you all have a, a third edition of the book, and there's so much going on now, and there's great discussion of not just Twitter, but also TikTok, and I think in the United States, there's talk about it being banned, and it's all, it's all moving so quickly. Now, what people should understand about this book, it's not a book about how to do a tweet or a Facebook post or other good books about how to do that. This is a book that I thought would be really helpful for like a, a CEO to read. Uh, certainly, marketing people should read it to help them to better educate their organizations uh, about what the myths are, uh, 
agencies could certainly do uh, the same thing. And I really like this series from Kogan Page. There was another book on uh, the show called The Myths of Marketing by Grant Leboff. That was episode 295 back in September of 2020. Terrific book. I just loved it. And I actually have plans to interview Andy Milligan about his book, Myths of Branding, in the new year. So tell Kogan Page, they really, they got a big fan here. So I want to read an excerpt from page two and then jump into a few of the myths. And what I should also say is normally when I'm interviewing an author, I go somewhat chronologically in the book because there's a reason they wrote the book in a certain order. But this is one book where we can jump around and it really won't matter too much. So that's exactly what we're going to do here. So you write on page two, in Myths of Social Media, we've tackled some of the most common misconceptions to support businesses in their use of social media. We settled on 30 myths to ensure that we covered the most critical ones that specifically align with business activity. Each myth is structured to include background information and research that is useful to understand the different features and functions of social media for business and professional use. Regardless of where you sit in your organization, whether you are CEO, founder, board member, manager, consultant, social media manager, executive, or a one-man, woman band going it alone, this book is designed to support you. Our hope is that it will help in two ways, to build wider awareness and understanding, and importantly, to give practical advice to support implementation, strategic and tactical planning, and general optimization of the networks. Our aim is to improve the effectiveness of your social media activity. Now, I said we're going to jump around, but I do want to start with the very first myth, which is social media is a waste of time. And there was a TV show in the United States uh, a while back called Conan O'Brien, late night TV show. And he used to do this segment where they would predict what's going to happen in the future. And I just want to play this one bit where they were predicting what was going to happen in social media in the future. YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook will merge to form one super time-wasting website called UTwitFace. <laughs> so what is it that makes people think that social media is a waste of time? And I think one of the reasons that this is a myth that is has some fact to it is because there's two questions. It's, is social media a waste of time? But the other question is, can you waste time on social media? The answer to the second question is absolutely yes. It's very easy to waste a lot of time on social media. Um, but that's not necessarily what everyone is doing. So it really depends on why you're using these platforms. Because these are both, they can be recreational platforms where you can spend time and just generally talk to people and connect with your friends and do all of that. But these are also useful communication tools. And they've kind of evolved into fundamental core infrastructure for most businesses. So if you're using it in that sense, where you're on social media for a particular purpose, whether it's marketing or communications or research and understanding your customers, or there's all sorts of different ways you can use these platforms, then they are potentially not a waste of time. They're potentially really, really useful in what you can learn on them, who you can connect with on them, and the messages that you can disseminate on them. So it's really important to ask that question, though, of what do I want to accomplish on this platform? Well, it's still a potential time suck. Let me just quote from page 11, where you write, do you still think social media is a complete waste of time? That's fine. You can always choose to opt out, 
But even if you have no desire to participate in anything related to social networking in the workplace, you should still read this book and understand how other people and companies are using it. Perhaps you believe that social media is all well and good, has varied uses and benefits, but you just do not want to share any of your personal data with tech behemoths, internet service providers, and or corporate HQ. That's a perfectly reasonable option that some will choose. But if you or your company opt out, you will need to find other ways to be competitive and productive. You still need to understand how your colleagues or competitors are operating and what they are doing well. Now, I mentioned that I want to jump around, and uh, I want to do that now. And my favorite chapter was uh, Myth 26, which was Social Media is Not Strategic. And there was an author on the show a couple of years ago named Jim Stern, and he wrote Artificial Intelligence for Marketing. And he had this expression in the book, which I loved and I always uh, mention, called Management by In-Flight Magazine. And that's where the boss reads an article on a flight over the weekend. <laughs> and then the next Monday comes in, throws the magazine down on the conference room table and points at the marketing person and says, TikTok, put all our money in that or, or something, just whatever the latest fad is. And that's where this strategic approach came to mind. And that's why I thought this chapter was really worth the price of the book. And I'll tell you why. It's on pages 240 to 242. There are these six sections, and it's almost like a lens through which you should look at not just social media, but everything you're doing in marketing. It's, it's beautiful how you put all this together where all these different aspects can go into evaluating whether you are on the right track with your social media. And let me just read them. You write, the following aspects should be considered when building out your social media strategy. It's these six sections. One, start with the end in mind. And there's several things in there, the questions you should be answering. Two, situation analysis. Research and analyze the following to establish where you are and where you want to go. Objectives and goals. Your social media activity should align with wider organizational objectives. Understanding the bigger picture enables you to focus on what matters. Four, channels. Five, tactics. Only then do we get into the tactics. And finally, the sixth one, measurement and KPIs. Ensure that you are using the social signals to learn about what's progressing well or not while keeping an eye on the bigger picture business signals. Your strategy needs to be optimized to deliver on those. So what are the problems you see with companies as it relates to having a strategic approach to social media? Yeah, I mean, I think often you do see that scattergun approach or that kind of in-flight magazine approach to social media, especially when people don't understand it as much. But you don't need to have a specific kind of understanding of the platforms necessarily to be setting that strategy, right? If you're hiring good people, especially good marketing people, um, then what you have to do as a business leader, whether you're a CEO or an entrepreneur or owner of a small company, is setting those strategic goals and make sure you're communicating them to your team. So then your social media manager or or, uh, marketing manager knows what you're trying to accomplish as a business, as a kind of corporate strategy or entrepreneurial strategy, 
And then that really connects with everything else you're doing as a business. So being strategic about it is so important because every time you're reading those in-flight magazines, you can say, okay, does this align with our strategy, with what we're trying to accomplish, with our vision, our overall goals, or not? Because it's really easy to be distracted on social media or by social media. The other kind of distractions you see sometimes is, don't need to name anyone in particular for this, but business leaders who get really, really distracted by because they are on social media and they're picking up on trends and events and they're following or chasing whatever the trending topic is on social media and they forget everything else about their business or the other things they should be focusing on or spending their time on. So definitely, as you've said, go to this strategy chapter and really examine this no matter what your role is in relation to social media. If you're you know, a senior strategic leader of a large company, great. If you're trying to build up a business, great. If you're a marketing manager trying to get promoted and trying to understand how your social media tactics fit in the overall organizational strategy, great. Figure out how those connections come together there and how the specific platform or the tactics or the communication, the messages fits within the broader organizational strategy. And that's, you know, understanding your customers, understanding your clients, understanding whoever the stakeholders are in the business, and really having a broader strategic understanding of what's going on in the business, connecting that to the outside world, and then figuring out how these specific social media channels are bridges between those two. That's so important. And let me just follow up and quote from that section a couple pieces that are some of my favorite in the entire book. You write on page 243, for businesses, their social media activity should fit within a framework of what the company does, who they are, and what they want to communicate in a contextual way, aligning with those with whom they are communicating. And you go on to write, once you know who your customer is or have defined the characteristics your customers have, you get a better sense of who they are and why they might be interested in your business. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? So a few weeks back, I interviewed Andy Crestadina about the sixth volume of his book, content chemistry. And I mentioned that there were three things you should never buy. And after reading your book, I'm now reminded that there are actually four. So when I spoke to Andy, I mentioned there are three things you should never buy. And one is you should never buy meth. And the second thing is you should never buy email addresses to use. And the third is that you should not ever pay for links to your website. But after reading your book, I'm reminded the fourth thing is you should never buy fake followers for your social media. Do you still see a lot of this going on? Oh, tons of it. Yeah, it happens really often. And that's often a, like a problem of mixed priorities and the wrong metrics. So a lot of people evaluate social media success by number of likes, followers, retweets, reshares, whatever they are, um, these really superficial metrics of success, which often don't necessarily lead to anything and sometimes are counterproductive, right? Fake followers are exactly that problem, completely counterproductive, um, not useful at all in looking at sales conversions or... Um, you know, what you're trying to actually do as a business. So the very next one, number 27, social media is purely for broadcasting, took me back a little bit because it seems like people or companies would know that this is not a good idea, but yet they still do it. And let me quote from page 249 where you write, 
When it comes to social media, this myth is still taken literally by far too many people, brands, and organizations. Take a look at random business accounts on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook, and you'll often see a stream of promotional one-way broadcast posts. Consistent, yes, yet often with zero or very low engagement. Far from being socially engaged with audiences, it's very clear that the whole purpose of many accounts is purely to broadcast. In fact, the focus on broadcasting overrides any opportunity for genuine engagement, so much so that comments, shares, retweets, or other signals of engagement are often totally ignored. The two-way conversation aspect of being social <laughs> just isn't part of the remit. The focus is purely one way, and that doesn't bode well if markets are conversations. So explain why you all like the analogy, two eyes, two ears, and just one mouth. Because there's so much going on on social media platforms when they're social, you know, when there's two directions of communication and people are having real conversations and listening to each other and learning from each other. Um, whereas if you're just using it as a broadcasting platform, you're really not using social media to its full potential. Because um, if your customers are on social media, which if you're going on social media, it's obviously because you think your customers or people you care about are on there, then you should be listening to have the to the conversations they're having, right? Listen to the communities you want to talk to and see what discussions are going on internally within those and how your business fits within that or how your message fits within that. Um, because if you're just kind of putting out information and hoping people then buy whatever your product is or click like on your posts, it's a real fundamental misunderstanding of how these platforms work and the real value that's in them. Um, because really, if you want to know how people are interacting with your brand or your product, then you can see how people are commenting on it, what type of interactions they're having on maybe your competitors' websites. That's the one time it's maybe useful to look at your competitors is to see what other people are saying about them or to see how other people are really interacting with them. If your competitors have um, developed a strategy that is really, really interactive and people are really connecting with them, then look at what they're doing. But don't look at it at a superficial level of just saying, okay, when are they posting? What time are they posting? And when should I be posting mine? But look at what the content is behind that, what is really hooking people in, what's getting people interested, what's making people passionate about wanting to actually post and discuss um, whatever that content is. So making sure it's interactive is really important. Yes, and you write on that section, Sprout Social found that brands share 23 promotional messages for every message they respond to. TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why marketing architects flip the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary they wrote a book about it. It's called All Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. Take us back 100 years and, and remind <laughs> us where this where this uh, myopia comes from. 
Yeah, well, there haven't always been these opportunities to actually listen to people, right? The only time you could do that is either getting a focus group or going out on the street and talking to people, which took some time and effort and resources. But now all of that is broadcast everywhere. So, you know, your audience is potentially exactly where you are. Um, so it's kind of changed from it being really difficult to reach audiences, to reach customers directly and have those conversations, whereas now you can do it instantaneously. And you can see how people are reacting to trends or brands or products or ideas in real time, and you can react to that if you're listening. But if you're not listening, then the opportunity is lost. Yes. And having sat in innumerable focus groups in, when I was younger in my career working in advertising, <laughs> I was found <laughs> – I can remember uh, I was I sat behind the the two-way mirror watching the uh, moderator interview customers and you write that Crimson Hexagon survey of digital marketing professionals revealed that nearly 3 quarters 72% believe monitoring public sentiment via social media is just as good if not better than using traditional focus groups. The thing that's great about this chapter, it's a good reminder of just how valuable the information is when you are simply listening on social media. You can get some insights that in the old days we would have paid big money to a research firm for. And another thing you mentioned about your competition, you can see if people are complaining or that they really like something about your competition and those kind of insights can give you some ideas as to maybe what problems you could be fixing or, or what kind of products you could be providing. There's another great quote. I love how you all turn a phrase here. <laughs> At the end on page 257, it said, listening should never be underestimated. It's a key sense that aids human survival, which is equally relevant for business survival. <laughs> so very well done. Let's jump to number 16, which is something we started to touch on. It's not possible to measure social media ROI. <laughs> you all quote uh, Zig Ziglar when he said, those that aim for nothing hit it with remarkable accuracy. <laughs> And let's see, just to set the stage here, um, you write, only 36% of marketers cite business goals and objectives as a factor influencing their approach to social. Not only that, but marketers cite measuring ROI and aligning social strategy with other parts of the business among their 10 greatest uh, challenges. And then let me jump to uh, page 145. You write, social media return on investment continues to be a keenly debated topic. A 2021 study undertaken by Sprout Social found that only 15% of marketers use social data to measure ROI. And then I'm going to read this, but it's actually a question. So what's the magic formula for ROI? What should people be measuring when it comes to social media? And what returns should they expect to see? Ian McRae, inquiring minds want to know. <laughs> well, that's again comes directly from strategy. So, I mean, I'm a psychologist and research methods is one of my focuses. So, I love data and I love metrics. Mm -hmm. But one of the things you have to remember is that you really have to make sure you're defining specifically what metrics you want, what metrics are relevant for you and your business. So, I can't tell you exactly what you should be measuring, but you have to go straight from strategy there to say, what is our business trying to achieve? 
when and how. And then you can say what metrics are important. Is it sales? Is it engagement? Is it you know awareness of our product? Is it having influencers with a whole bunch of followers retweet? Probably not. But go to the specific metrics that are defining your business's success and then work backwards from there and say, okay, what tactics, what strategies, what tools on social media are going to get me there? Um, but exactly, you have to make sure it's well-defined, clearly defined and measurable and that you're tracking it in a kind of relevant and effective way. And I thought this chapter was just chock full of things that marketers could use to help lead the discussion about what to measure. But but also, it will help to more subconsciously help management understand <laughs> what can and can't be measured. And there was a, yeah. uh, you're right, just because we can measure something doesn't necessarily mean we receive useful or meaningful results. This is particularly true when it comes to measuring ROI. And it reminds me of the quote often attributed to Einstein about not everything that matters can be measured and not everything that can be measured matters. And I say attributed to Einstein because it's like every cool quote is attributed to Einstein, I think. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) So let's jump to number 15. Let's talk about something important. Social media is not effective for business development. (laughs) Okay. That's a myth. Okay. Now, a few years back, I remember we did, uh, we were starting off with a new client and getting all their content squared away and we're going to handle their social media and we were doing a workshop and this one uh, salesperson comes up to me, uh, we'll call him Paul because that was his name, and he said something like, does this mean I now have to get a Twitter account? Does this mean I now have to be on Twitter? And you know, I just kind of laughed it off, but I remember thinking that I should have said something like, well, it depends, Paul. Do you, do you want to sell more? Or? <laughs> and I think now that I uh, know more, I don't think his, he was even compensated for additional sales. So he was really more of a manager. But tell us what social selling is. Yeah, well, social selling is using your network to find prospects or to find connections that can really expand, help, or develop your business. So social selling is more than just the broadcasting that we talked about before. It's really using your network and the networks in social media ecosystems more effectively to leverage your business or your product and also to understand what the landscape is like so you can understand your customers or your clients or your stakeholders and then communicate and connect with them much more effectively. And you all mentioned, you recommended a book by Tim Hughes, Social Selling, uh, also published by Kogan Page, and this episode sponsored by Kogan Page. (laughs) Uh, No, um, but uh, the second edition of Social Selling is now out, and I'm going to be interviewing uh, Tim about that, very excited about that. And you have a very interesting bit of information, which I could have shared with Paul back in the day. Always be closing. Salesforce reports that 78% of social sellers outsell peers who don't use social media. So if you think it's stupid, you don't want to take the time to understand how it might benefit you, that's fine. That's fine. You just, you might not sell as much. So now what people should understand though, is that's not, you shouldn't spend all your time on social media. (laughs) There've been over 50 books on sales on the podcast over the years, and they will all say, pick up the damn phone. You can use social media, but it's only one small piece of the puzzle. 
uh, but it can be very, very helpful. That's a good point, actually, which I think is getting lost more and more, especially in the last couple of years of digital communication expanding so much. And, you know, some companies, some businesses, some marketers moving to being less direct, less having fewer direct connections with people or thinking everything can be done digitally. And that's not true. That is another myth that should probably be in the next book, is that sometimes if you can, you should pick up the phone instead of sending a tweet. And sometimes you should have an in-person meeting instead of picking up the phone or sending a tweet, right? So understanding how to build relationships separately in the real world is fundamentally important to marketing and sales and business success. Yes, and I was just reading uh, Selling in a Crisis by Jeb Blunt. I'm going to be interviewing him uh, this week, and he he talks about there's synchronous and asynchronous. Mm -hmm. And you should start with the the synchronous. Pick up the phone because you might actually get – to that phone call, you might get to that conversation first. Now, I know everyone doesn't want to do that, but they have lots of data. They can explain that you can't do it all asynchronously. So let's talk about myth 13. Social media is no use for internal communications. This chapter is another great example of why this is a terrific book for senior managers to read, but also uh, people in all those other departments, HR, R&D, uh, sales, and so forth. You write that McKinsey reports a rise in productivity of workers of 20 to 25% when using social media technologies to enhance communications, knowledge sharing, and collaboration. So talk about how social media technologies are being used internally to help organizations break down uh, organizational silos and uh, drive innovation, save time, and enable increasingly remote employees to collaborate more effectively. Yeah, there's the collaboration tools here that are really important. And when we say social media, we actually include some internal social media as part of this too, right? Like Slack or Teams or any of that tech is also yes. social media. Because Very important. it's a communication platform. You can post pictures, you can share documents, you can talk to people directly, have meetings, all of that. So any other channels that you can use to have better communication, more direct communication, um, with people internally is really helpful. So that's part of it. And leveraging these tools to make sure that, especially if you have big global distributed workforces, that people can communicate directly, effectively using the platform that's best for them. And that's usually a combination of, you know, social media tools or picking up the phone, sometimes having those in-person meetings um, Mm -hmm. with having whatever opportunities to connect and make sure that information can get around the organization as quickly and efficiently as possible. So having those channels opened up is really useful. But there's a second issue too about having um, kind of public social media channels and considering um, how employees might respond to them. Because there's a couple big examples of this we've seen really, really recently that really highlight it, um, both in Twitter and in Disney. And it's interesting because both of those organizations have had fundamentally different messages or kind of inconsistencies between messages between what they've communicated to potential customers or users and their workforce. And we've seen big conflict in workforces really, really not liking the kind of public communication. And so that kind of conflict, if you have a huge, huge disparity between what you're saying internally to people and what you're saying externally to your customers or clients, that can create a real conflict too. What was it that happened at Disney? 
So there were a few um, political issues, particularly in the U.S., that Disney employees didn't agree with. I think one of them was about their theme parks and the kind of regulations that were happening in Florida. Oh, they weren't agreeing with what their company's decisions were? Yeah, I think it was more that they didn't agree that their company didn't use their social channels to you know, engage in that political discussion, which is a really, really complicated thing for a company to get involved in, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because my advice would generally be, don't go into politics if you don't need to. If that's not what your company does, don't get political or too ideological. But when you have this contrast of your employees saying, you have these huge social channels that we think you should be using for this particular purpose, that creates a really interesting both tension and debate, right? Are these external marketing channels that you're just talking to your customers, or is there a wider use or purpose that you should have for these? And some companies do it really well when their internal and external messaging is really clearly aligned. So you can say the same thing to your customers, clients, and employees, um, but some get into trouble if they think if employees or customers think there's a huge disparity there. Ah, okay, good. Thank you. But on page 125, you write, as logical as it seems to connect employees via internal social networks to enable them to work more collaboratively, the use of internal social media is currently far from mainstream. Again, this surprised me. Why, why do you think that is? What's holding companies back from doing this? Part of it's companies that have physical locations don't need to as much. So companies that are more remote or more distributed or have more remote workers tend to do this a lot better and have been forced to do this. The pandemic also forced a lot of people to do this when there were restrictions that were restrictions on people, you know, meeting in person face to face. A lot of digital tech and tools um, really came available and were necessary. So a lot of companies implemented these, but they're still not used to their maximum effect, I don't think, um, because there's a lot of things you can do to bring wider groups of employees together to communicate across departments, to break down silos, to make sure, not necessarily that you're filling your calendar with meetings all the time, but to make sure that those connections are available when people need to get information from different parts of the business. So using these communication tools as they absolutely should be used to kind of cross traditional boundaries or to, you know, cross, you know, floors or departments or wherever is useful for people to be talking to each other across different groups or sections of the organization or um, sometimes even different parts of different teams. It also made me wonder if there's still this command and control desire that management has. They, they're, they're a little nervous about people communicating with each other too much, but they already are. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you're not going to stop it, right? Like if you no. try and tamp that down, that's going to create even more problems. People find ways to talk, whether it's on you know social media or on Slack channels or on the phone or in person or at coffee or at the bar after work. Like people will have these conversations. So trying to suppress them just makes you look bad as a manager and makes you more out of touch because then you won't be part of those conversations. You won't be able to hear what's going on. You won't know fundamentally what the discussion is at your company if you try and mm-hmm. block all of that from happening. So that kind of autocratic approach to management, managing communication really doesn't work. Well, slow down there, McRae, because now I'm going to want to read Myths of Work. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You definitely should. Yeah. So <laughs> let's jump to uh, another one, a myth. Mm-hmm. Business leaders don't need a presence on social media. Mm-hmm. Remind listeners the benefits of leaders having 
a presence on social media? Especially if it's strategic. So I would make sure to say leaders should think about their strategy before starting that Twitter account or LinkedIn profile or whatever it is. But once you have that strategy clear, then you can do both speaking and listening um, as it's appropriate for your role and what you want to accomplish. So one is having that direct channel of communication that's open. So if you have some really specific messages that people should hear right from the top, then those social channels can be a great way to do that. Now, I would definitely recommend if you're a CEO who's new to social selling or being on social media, take some really good advice from your marketing department and listen to your communications people. Uh, (laughs) Please, yes. (laughs) And in some cases, the legal department as well. But make sure you've got some guidance and structure. And this book, along with the experts that you've hired, who are probably the brilliant people in your company who you trust and can take advice from, um, to make sure that you've got some structure about how to do that, what you're trying to accomplish. But then once you're there, having that direct presence can be so useful, both in communication and in listening, because it's great if you can see what your customers are going to say about you on social media, because the complaints are there, probably the people who love what you're doing are there, and people are having those discussions. So don't take too much time diving into those, but it's useful to have some context, especially if you're you know, taking advice internally, as well as doing a bit of listening externally. It's interesting when I've seen a CEO on Twitter and and somebody might be complaining about a a product or their service and I see a response. I just, (laughs) you know, it just makes me think, wow, they're they're actually listening or somebody's listening and they're actually responding. I remember once um, one of the HubSpot founders, I I, I looked at his Twitter feed and a couple people were saying, hey, I'm having a problem with your software. And Brian Halligan was like, well, let me look into it. Thank you for letting me know. Wow. <laughs> and a lot more people saw that than were complaining. So there was a, a great line. Uh, John Laguerre, Laguerre, former CEO of T-Mobile, he wrote that for him, social media is the most important tool in the CEO's modern-day toolbox. Hmm. So something to think about. But now speaking of people complaining, <laughs> let's go to myth six. It's like we're walk- working our way backward. But Myth six is it's not worth responding to criticism on social media. And I can just hear people – I can hear what they're thinking, as they say. Uh, don't feed the trolls. But let me just read uh, from page 58 here. Avoiding social media does not free companies from criticism online. People will take to social media to complain about businesses or products they have a problem with, even if the organization is not on social media. But if you participate in social media, you can respond to these complaints directly and actively manage your reputation online. What should companies know about responding to criticism? And I guess, is that related to why they're afraid to respond? Probably, especially if companies don't really know who their customers are, because that's an important component here, is make sure if you're responding to stuff, they're actual customers or they're actual clients or they're actual people who have some sort of investment in your business, right? So if you have people with specific problems who are complaining on social media, definitely respond to that, because it does two things. One, hopefully it, it resolves the individual problem, but two, it signals who you are as a company or as a business more generally, right? That you are open, you are listening, you are aware of what's going on on and you're actively trying to fix things. So if you do that, you will have more people potentially bringing their problems to you on social media. But that's what you want if they're things that you can resolve and you should have, you know, the staffing in place to do that that, you know, fits your business model and fits how much availability you can give to, you know, whether it's techni- 
technical support or responding to criticisms or, you know, products breaking or just directing people to where the information is. But there are a few things you should think about in that process too, is whether you're responding to it publicly or privately. So sometimes it's great to respond to these messages publicly if you're both responding to that person and sending a signal. If you're worried that it might be a troll or it's, you know, not a legitimate complaint, sometimes it's best to send people a private message or ask them to send you a message specifically to show that you've responded to it. But so you don't have this long chain of messages if it's someone who's just trying to cause mischief. And you can usually figure that out within a couple tweets to see if it's a legitimate complaint <laughs> or if people are trying to take you somewhere else for a different reason. So that's why it's so important to have that presence on social media, because you have to be actively managing it, listening it, and understanding it. And if you are listening to those complaints, you can sometimes not just solve the individual problems, but make more structural changes to make sure, you know, maybe quality is managed better internally before stuff is even shipped out. Because if there's one thing people are complaining about over and over again, or if your tablets are exploding or something, Thing, that's something you want to know about really quickly. <laughs> so, right. so managing that process and being actively involved in it is so important. It's as important as having a shop front with you know, people who are actually in there to make sure that you're talking to people who are coming in to visit your business. Yes, and like I said earlier, it's it's very often information that you would have paid a lot of money to to find out, like from a mystery shopper or a, a research firm. Mm -hmm. There was a great book on the show a couple of years back by Jay Baer called Hug Your Haters, and he goes into great depth about this. And a couple of things that he, I remember him mentioning were, was that maybe only 4% of your customers will ever complain to you. Mm. But most of that 4%, it's, it's fairly helpful, valuable feedback. And it's not so much that they want to, to be comped on whatever it is. They want to be heard. Yeah. And the other thing that I think was in the book where he talked about how res you can respond publicly, but never more than twice. In other words, always invite them offline so that you can get, get to the bottom of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, but otherwise, if it goes more than two, more something like that, then that you may have your uh, a mischievous you know troll just trying to cause trouble. Yeah. So that was interesting. I, when I read that, I remember thinking, well, that gives companies a little less to be worried about because they're they're trying to respond, they're inviting somebody to contact them directly. But if they're not going to do that, people can see that it's. Uh, you know that they they've done everything they they possibly can. Now I teased this other one earlier uh, by mistake, which is uh, <laughs> social media is free, mm. and this is the one that really got me. Right when putting this myth into the mix, we questioned ourselves. <laughs> so did the re so did this reader. Given how widely social media has now been embraced within business and the dominance of activated paid campaigns, do people really still think of the platforms as free? And I guess the answer is yes. I guess some people do, and because there's no fee to sign up for them, Twitter might be changing that soon, but generally people think, well, no subscription fee to a piece of software to a platform means it's free. The other thing that I've heard recently people say is that, oh, we don't pay for marketing which is a bit disingenuous because what they mean is they're not paying for TV ads or they're not paying for specific radio placements or something like that. It yeah, promotion. Mean, yeah, paid promotions. But they're spending a lot of money on marketing and content. So they're creating glossy campaigns or creating great content or you know writing long blogs that they're posting on social media, contributing to you know media discussions and then posting lots of links to their social media and other pages and getting the discussion going or even owning the discussion 
they're spending a huge amount of money on resources, on production, on the talent in their company who is making that content that's getting noticed, <laughs> right. right? It's a huge, huge, huge part of their budget. It's not free at all. It's a huge investment and in a lot of cases is a focus of the business, but it is expensive and it's expensive to do well. So that's the other thing is to make sure that you're thinking about what you're trying to accomplish with that, but also the costs and the benefits. It goes back to return on investment. But, you know, if social me media is free in the sense that you're getting an unpaid intern to manage your Twitter profile and you have a huge multinational company, you're going to get Ooh. into a lot of trouble really quickly because... <laughs> You want people. Really, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that won't that that'll that'll uh, end as badly for you as you know buying meth or buying exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of case studies of having that. Uh, oh, they're a digital native, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But yeah. it was I remember back to Jay Bear. Now that I got Jay Bear on my brain, I remember him once saying, "Yeah, social media is free, like a puppy is free." Yeah. <laughs> And there's, a, there's quite a bit that people are spending on. And also your comment about, you know, we haven't done any marketing. I've heard that. And I've mentioned this recently. So many companies will say, you know, we grew our business for 30 years and we didn't do any marketing. And, you know, then you'll say, well, you'll ask questions about their product or how they determine their pricing or how they distribute it, all of which has to do with marketing. Mm -hmm. And what they mean is they haven't bought ads. Yep, exactly. So it kind of belies the understanding or misunderstanding of what marketing is. So there was, but I, there was something I, if it's, if this was in the earlier edition, I don't remember it, but I just found this really, really interesting about how social media is misunderstood at the board level. I want to quote from page 81 where you write, while social media has evolved into a global commercial industry, enabling organizations to engage directly with external customers, relevant influencers, and bring about online conversations with their own employees Organizations often still underestimate the reach and influence of social media, the heritage of these channels being free, and the continued misconception that the platforms are largely filled with inane noise and people still sharing pictures of their lunch <laughs> has potentially hampered the adoption of social media strategy by organizational leaders. So the next one was kind of like this one, social media is free. Myth number nine, social media can replace your business website. And this is where maybe it's the, the curse of knowledge that I have. But it, you know, it really was worth an entire chapter. So let's talk about that. Well, there, there's, there's so many great reminders in this. One of them is, well, you've heard people say, don't build your house on rented land. Mm -hmm. So if you invested all your time and resources in building a big presence on Google+, how did that work out? Uh, Google yeah. <laughs> Plus was just was taken away, uh, and these these uh, platforms come and go. They won't always be there. And it's a great line on page eighty five where you say social media websites are advertising platforms. Talk about that. Yeah, and that's that's where they get their revenue from. I think there was that infamous quote from Mark Zuckerberg when he was in a Senate hearing. <laughs> the senator is asking, "How? What is this platform?" Not understanding it, and he said, "Senator, we sell ads. That's what they are. That's where they make their billions, tens of billions of dollars from. Yeah. Is selling ads and understanding who their users are and what kind what kind of data and information." and products they consume and then serving up adverts for them. And then that's how, you know, every marketer and communications person can segment their market and understand um, who we're trying to sell to, what type of products are people buying and who should we show that information to. So they're, they're huge, huge, huge media and advertising platforms. They're free to sign mm -hmm. up for, 
but they make their money from that. So it's important to understand how to use them effectively in that context, but also knowing that they're not really working for you. They're taking a cut. So it's really, really unadvisable to put all your eggs in one basket if it's someone else's basket, right? So Because <laughs> they can change their terms and conditions. They can change the way the algorithms work at a moment's notice without any consultation with their people who are advertising on their platforms. And that happens all the time, especially if there's lots of businesses that only have social media pages, sometimes small and medium-sized businesses, it makes sense to just have that when you're starting up or you're growing your business and it's really relatively cheap and inexpensive and not time-consuming to have some social media pages. But you can be blocked, you can lose access to them, you can forget your password, not be able to recover it. There's all sorts of ways that you can lose your entire business if your entire business is on someone else's platform. So it's really important to build up your own channels and to use social media sites as resources to connect with your core site, your website, whatever that channel is that you own and you can control, right? Because otherwise you have not very much power over how you're marketing, how you're talking to your customers or how you're connecting with people, right? If something fundamentally changes in your business and you can't log into your Twitter page and you can't tell your customers about that, that's going to be a huge, huge problem. So don't rely on these platforms 100%. Definitely understand their value and importance but understand how these fit into the broader picture and make sure you're still controlling your own business. It's not built purely on someone else's website. Um, so there's lots of advice that comes from that in um, figuring out how to direct customers or clients or whoever's interested in learning about your company, your organization to your main website or to your storefront or wherever you want to get people to go, but make sure you're directing people there and that you have other methods of communication. The other thing that happens is these platforms go down sometimes for hours, but it could be days. It could potentially be longer one day, like Google Plus or Orcut or, I don't know, MySpace. I don't know who's advertising on that. But <laughs> You've got a long list here in <laughs> this chapter. A, yep, there's yeah. plenty that have disappeared. So don't rely on them 100%. Learn whatever you can from them. Use them and optimize them when they're most effective, but also figure out how to keep your customers on your platform or in your Rolodex or you know digital Rolodex or whatever version of that that is to make sure that you've got that connection with people and your customers separate from the social media platforms. Yes, and in your pages on whatever social media platform could be mistakenly deleted. Mm -hmm. You write, social media may be a good shop window, but it needs to get people through the digital door to be effective. So in almost all cases, the object of the game <laughs> is to get people to your website and then capture their email address. Not to spam them, but to deepen the relationship. You all, you all write that a list of contacts is an extraordinary valuable resource. And I just want to quote from, uh, just again, uh, wake up and smell the coffee, folks, here, page 89. It's important to remember that the majority of the rewards from your work on social media go to the social media company. Mm -hmm. For all the interest in online interaction you generate through content, a lot of the benefit goes to that platform. They are more than happy to share their platform with you so that you can help them obtain user data and advertising revenue. I loved it. And the other th reminder from the that chapter, let's say you have a website, but all your activities on is on the social media page. Go back and rethink that. You know what? Be careful putting all your activity. Is are there other things you could be doing? Uh, the more that you do on your website, actually, the more that you can then promote that on on uh, 
social media as well. So uh, let me ask the last one here. And again, this is probably related to your myths of work uh, research and, and dark social, but digital natives are all social media experts. And I thought this probably this probably is a widespread myth, but I learned a lot from this chapter. Talk about how digital natives are are not social media experts. And I can remember a few years back, I went to lunch with this uh, company and they brought along this woman who had just got graduated from college and she was like their first marketing person. And during the course of the lunch, this is a senior executive, he, he said, yeah, we hired her because she knows the Facebook thing. <laughs> <laughs> and she looked at me like, she was under duress, like, I swear I'm going to get out of here as soon as I can find another job. And sure enough, she left. But I mean, she was really sharp and everything, but it was sort of like, hey, I got student loans to pay. Yeah. <laughs> I needed this job. And you know, she was trying to help them get their website set up, but, uh, she, but she left. But yeah, talk, talk about this. There are uh, – uh, we started to touch on it earlier where we said, yeah, get that intern to handle our social media. Talk about how digital natives are not necessarily social media experts. Yeah, and this is one of the things that actually changed in the second edition is we said millennials on the first edition and we realized that's definitely not even the youngest age generation anymore. Um, oh, right. But yeah. that's, yeah, so that's kind of, there's fundamentally a bigger myth here about um, kind of age and technical literacy, which is not necessarily true. And there's a ton of research showing that, you know, at any age group or generational group, there's way more variation in motivation and experience, life experience, knowledge, personality within any age group than between the age groups. So if we apply this to social media, often the assumption is younger people are digital natives, so they grew up with social media, they fundamentally understand how to use it. And that's not necessarily true at all. So maybe younger people are very familiar with a specific platform, application, set of technology. They may use it all the time, kind of naturally for personal communication and their own friendship groups, networks. That doesn't mean they have any understanding about how to use it for business. And that's not a bad thing necessarily if they don't have the experience, right? It's not a criticism. It's just saying just because someone has used Twitter doesn't mean they can use Twitter to for a major global brand. That's something that takes a lot of experience, knowledge, background um, to understand how to you know, translate a big organizational strategy into communication tactics on a specific platform. So, and the same is true about older generations too, right? It's There's kind of a common misconception that it, the older people are, the less competent they are on social media, which is absolutely Absolutely not true, right? People with the most experience on social media, which has been around for 20 to 30 years, depending on how you define your platforms, are going to be people with that experience, who have that experience, not just being on the platforms and using them to talk with their friends, but for business, strategic communication, business development, social selling purposes. So those kind of age differences are really important to debunk because if you're choosing your social media strategy and your personnel based on that myth or misconception, it's going to cause some problems. Yes. And I think it was in David Mirman Scott's eighth edition of the New Rules of Marketing and PR where he has a section on, I believe it was American Airlines, and they have a real-time you know, newsroom and a social media presence, and they use that. They're it's a big team, and they're using that to help run their business better because somebody will complain on Twitter or, or whatever. And as I recall, you can't even work in that group unless you've worked at that airline for ten years first. Mm. So <laughs> you need to understand they, they they weren't so concerned about 
social media abilities, although I guess you have to have that, an interest in that, but you need to understand how the airline runs yeah. and how, <laughs> how the information you're getting can then be used to help another part of the, of the airline. And so those are, I don't know if they were millennials or not, but it was, that was interesting. They had to have business insights uh, before they would even be considered for the, the social media team. So, well, Ian, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I would say, please be strategic or definitely set your intentions, whether you're using it personally, professionally, individually, think about what you want to accomplish from it. Think about what your goals are or what your objectives are, what you would be happy taking away from it, and think about that when you're using it. Because it's really easy to get lost in a million different social media, rabbit holes, wormholes, whatever. But think about what you're trying to accomplish, like you would do with any kind of goal-setting activity, whether it's business or personal um, set those intentions and figure out what you want to do. Because if you don't have an objective, you're ultimately going to waste a lot of time. Oh, and that's a bit of an affirmation for the fact that chapter 26 <laughs> about strategy was my favorite chapter. Just Absolutely. those two and a half pages. Oh, everything else will work better if you could just go through those two and a half pages. So what is one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the ideas from your book? I would, again, think of what has been successful in the past or think of really good examples of marketing, whether it's on social media or not. Again, go back to that kind of core idea of strategy or thinking of uh-huh. best practice and then think of a really specific example and think of a way that you could do it. You don't actually have to do it necessarily, but plan it out. Think about what the steps are and how you would make that happen. And then use that to inform everything you're doing about your marketing in the future. Go from strategy, take your specific thing you want to do, and then work from there. Ah, warming the cockles of my heart, Ian. (laughs) So looking back, what books have most inspired your work and career? Probably some psychology books. Mostly psychology books. Yeah, my background is more in that kind of psychological research. I really like Philip Zimbardo's books, and he's written one book on social media that's not the best for marketing, but more generally about social psychology and how people relate to situations and social pressures. And I think that's really, really interesting in understanding social selling or marketing, is understanding these kind of big group impacts. The other person I actually really like is Richard Dawkins's early science writing, just because I think he's such a good communicator about really complex ideas and turning them into kind of interesting stories that make sense and are relevant for people. Um, he's actually put together some kind of compilations of really good science research that I absolutely love because that's really one of the things I try and do with my books too is to try and take complex, abstract, or scientific technical principles and say, how does this matter to us? Why is it relevant to our life? And why is it interesting? Interesting, interesting. Well, I'm going to have to look those up now. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Um, I would recommend Dark Social if you're interested in the psychology side of it. That's my book from last year, Dark Social, Understanding the Dark Side of Work, Personality, and Social Media. And so that's how all those factors kind of fit together and understanding people and relationships and communication on social media. Um, Michelle Carville, my co-author's book about sustainable marketing, is really, really interesting. And I think that's a kind of profound idea that I'm glad that she's working on and really actively promoting and how we can look at how marketing can have a positive influence on both society and the planet. Oh, yeah. And Sustainable Marketing was on episode 325 in 2021, uh, where I interviewed Michelle. And if you 
didn't come on this time, she would have become a member of the Marketing Book Podcast Three Timers Club. <laughs> but you know, she wanted to share the wealth. But she's—I know she's working on other books too. So maybe I'll be able to to get her uh, back. And I do appreciate you sending me a copy of Dark Social. It's Dark Social: Understanding the Darker Side of Work, Personality, and Social Media. I looked through it, but I was afraid to read too much more because of the dark things I'd find out about my own my own past. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, it, there were things I don't want to know about myself. So. Uh, there you go. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Yeah. I'm kidding. <laughs> so at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books you mentioned and uh, to your company site and your LinkedIn profile and mm-hmm. Twitter account. Now a word to you, dear listener. I want to ask you a big favor. Please reach out in some way to Ian, uh, even though you may be disappointed that he's not Scottish. Congratulate him on the book and thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Send him a message on any one of those uh, platforms that I just mentioned. Hey, reach out to him on social media. Ah, See what I did there? Guests on the show have told me that they really enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners, and not just because Marketing Book Podcast listeners are so ridiculously good-looking. And if you are listening on your smartphone, you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. All these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is Myths of Social Media, Dispel the Misconceptions and Master Social Media, second edition. The authors are Michelle Carville and Ian McRae. Ian, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. For a copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you are one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn who said, formal education will make you a living, self-education will make you a fortune.